Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 31 of the Lay Film Podcast. I'm your co-host, Richard, and here with me are my co-hosts, Patrick, Tyler T. Lizard Cunningham, and Kevin. <laughs> and in this episode, um, I actually have some cool announcements I wanted to let you guys in on. Um, so a couple of weeks ago uh, was my my debut at the theater in over a year. So I haven't been to the movie theaters in like, yeah, about 14, 15 months now. And yeah, uh, I watched some incredible movies. I went to watch um, Spiral from the Book of Saul, starring Chris Rock. <laughs> um, yeah, he executively produced this film. It was his idea to like relaunch this franchise. And so, yeah, I was pretty excited to go back to the theaters to watch this one. And, uh, yeah, I liked it. It was, um, if you are a fan of Saw movies, you will like this movie. If you are not a fan of Saw movies, then why even give it a shot? <laughs> Do you guys remember when, like, uh, Saw first came out? Um, there was that whole, uh, f- there was that whole craze of creating, uh, torture movies like torture-based movies, like yeah. uh, Hostel. Was that after? I was never into that. Was it afterwards? I, I don't know. Hostel's before. I remember that there was like a period of time, though, for like a few years where there were like just movies dedicated to like just torture or showing like torture on like film or like on screen, like uh, like Human Centipede mm. and like uh, a bunch Hostel. of... Hostel. Hills Have Eyes, is that like a torture movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel, I feel like that could be like... I never watched it. I've never in. watched any of these movies. It could be lump- Hills of that's from the seventies, isn't it? Before the remake and the oh, okay. See, I'm just thinking of the- oh yeah, yeah, those like mid two thousand kind of <laughs> films. Yeah, I know you're talking about like a wrong turn, right? Yeah, yeah. I know they had a reboot for yeah. wrong, wrong turn. Kevin, you talked about that uh, a few episodes back. I don't remember any of it. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a good old time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so I watched. Uh, Spiral from the Book of Saw. I thought it was a good entry. Uh, I thought that Chris Rock was going to reinvigorate the franchise based on like how he said, oh, I have a great idea for a new Saw film. Nope, he just wanted to be in a Saw film, I guess. And yeah, I guess Chris Rock likes that genre. And um, I'm very interested in what they do next with it. Um, he definitely brings his uh, persona to the film. If you like Chris Rock, as an actor and a comedian, he definitely brings that into this film, a much-needed uh, charismatic presence. So, yeah, um, three out of five. And uh, I also watched Army of the Dead, uh, the Zack Snyder film. Um, very good, like, stylized action ensemble, because Dave Bautista has the lead role, but he's not really in it as much as you'd think. It was more of a uh, this great ensemble of diverse characters and uh, I really do champion <clears throat> the fact that Zack Snyder always uh, has diversity in his film, which is what I love. And um, yeah, there's a zombie tiger in this movie. And um, <laughs> he, Zack Snyder makes zombies cool and sexy again. So uh, Speaking of zombies, um, I've been watching this show on Netflix <clears throat> called Santa Clarita Diet, which was, um, I think it got canceled after like a few seasons, but uh, it's like... I don't know. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, it has, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Um, the guy who was in uh, Justified, Timothy Oliphant. Oliphant, yeah. Him and Drew Barrymore, and um, yeah, it's about 
someone becoming a zombie and learning how to like live in suburbia while you know still going through the pro the slow drawn out process of becoming undead i don't know i thought it was i thought it was pretty cool um or i'm, I'm thinking i'm liking it a lot so far um uh aside from that i watched this one movie called something useful which was by a turkish director named um palin esmer which i thought was uh, really cool it's on mubi if you want to check it out it's about um a poet who accompanies uh, a young nurse to uh euthanize a terminally ill man and yeah it's it's there's not a whole lot to the narrative it's you just have to like let it wash over you but i thought and pretty much the entire time they're like on a train from point a to point b and uh i don't know i thought it was really sweet because the uh the poet is like on her way to um well she's a lawyer she she's a lawyer first and then a poet second and then um she's on like a trip to go see her to go to a a, a school reunion after 25 years and then she gets like uh, so drawn in by this nurse who is kind of like hiding and hiding the fact that she's going to do this very um, questionable act of whether or not I don't know if it's mercy uh, that's up to you to to decide. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was great. Uh, once again, that was something useful by Pelin Esmer. Nice. nice. <clears throat> Oh yeah, I'm really dead. Three point five out of five. Quick review. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching Sopranos. Yeah. Oh, which season are Finally, you on? I'm on season two. Oh, like midway through season two. Mm hmm. It's fucking dope. I love it. How do you think it differs from? Um, I mean, just like right off the bat, like seeing your Goodfellas poster. Uh. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, like all the gangster shit's still there, but it's more like it's way more. Um, I don't know. It's crazy. You get way more of a glimpse into like their actual life, like Tony Soprano's life, with his like psychiatrist and everything. And yeah, it's just dope. The music's so good. Like every I found, I've already found so many songs from uh, Sopranos. Um, but yeah, and it's just fucking hilarious too. Like I forget his buddy's name. His like right hand guy, Jimmy. Is it Jimmy? His right hand dude? Uh, Polly. Oh yeah, Polly. Polly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when he's like. Hey, I just called it. Did you hear that? I just called this guy a fucking numb nuts or whatever. He said. Oh yeah, hey Tone, you hear that? I yeah, numb nuts. Holy Or he's like, uh, what's his other quote? He's like, just when I thought I was dumb, it reels me back in. <laughs> I forgot that guy's name. He was my favorite. Silvio. Yeah. Silvio. Yeah, Silvio. Wait, that's Silvio. That's the one with the I black mean, hair. Fuck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Silvio Dante. Yeah. There's so many. Every single character in that show is memorable to me. And it's like no matter like how much screen time they have, there's like an important I don't know, they leave like such a lasting impression on you. And I remember like the moment I was like sucked into the show was like when um you started there's this one scene, I don't know if you've like gotten to it yet. It's a very small scene where like Tony's like looking around at like a barbecue and he's like I don't know it's it's great. Like it, it's just, the show has such a unique way of portraying uh, Tony's dilemma of wanting to strive for something that he's never that he was permanently um, uh, born into. Yeah, he was born into exactly, and 
Like, especially with the ducks, like, in the very first, like, episode. Mm. Like, he has, like, this fascination with, like, the baby ducks coming around and, like, living in this pool, watching them grow old and, like, fly off and hoping that they return. And I don't know. It's That's, like, all you need to know about the show, really, and to dive yeah. right in. Like, Someone way smarter than me, I'd heard them say, that The Sopranos is, like, taking the Goodfellas gangster trope, but it's meant to be reflective of the American decline or Tony's born into the mob business, families, the next boss, whatever. But it's not satisfying. It's alienating. Even that's on the way out. It's, he hates everyone. He hates himself. He hates his family. It's like the death of the American dream, but yeah. played out in Tony's world. It's so nostalgic watching it now, too, because it's like early 2000s, like exactly like the time that we grew up. So just seeing everything, like the style and the clothes and like flip phones and TV shows and shit, Nintendo, I'm like, it's super nostalgic. Blackberry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, what does he drive? An es- no, uh, he doesn't drive an Escalade. It's like a Ford. Um... He drives like a Chevy, like, Trailblazer. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I remember seeing those cars everywhere, mm-hmm. like. <laughs> but, yeah, I haven't really watched anything else, honestly. <clears throat> Yeah, like I, oh, I rewatched Pulp Fiction, like, randomly. Like, just, like, sitting down. I think Abby was watching it. I like, I mean, I have Pulp Fiction up in the house, too, but, like, I honestly, like, have, wasn't a huge, huge fan. Like, I like other Tarantino movies. But I get, it's fucking, it's pretty fucking good. Like, well, what would you say are some of your favorite Tarantino movies? Uh, my probably favorite is, uh... Probably Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, my favorite. Yeah, and then after that, I actually really liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too. A lot of people hated that movie, but I could just fucking watch uh, Leo and <laughs> Brad Pitt fuck around in that world forever. It's hilarious. <laughs> That's his like most sincere feeling film to me. Yeah, it feels like he's it's just... like an ode to Hollywood, which is you know there's problematic and or problems in that, but. Like, just the end where, like, he's, like, you can see, like, a little kid in Tarantino. Like, man, if it was a goddamn Marine that those yeah. helter-skelter killers, the house, they went to that house instead of the Polanski house, things would have been different. It's mm-hmm. just so, like, it feels like an insight to his psyche. It's, like, wish fulfillment in yeah. film. Yeah, it's, like, his version of, like, fairy tale Hollywood where, you know, it had actually had a good ending. You know, Sharon Tate's story uh, lives on, you know. <clears throat> Patrick, anything you've been um, watching or consuming lately? Uh, I've been pretty lazy recently. Uh, I did the film month. I never, I never posted or shared about it. <laughs> I did watch a lot of movies. Uh, it was a classic. I think we, I talked about Streetwise. There's some other ones. Like right now, they're all escaping me. But yeah, I'm just uh, working a new job and settling in. Hey, it's good to be busy and good to be proactive and occupied, right? Mm-hmm. And at least we have this podcast where we can talk about a movie every time, right? So, oh, and I forgot to add, uh, I'm on season three of Attack on Titan now. Oh yeah, I just started, so I watched like the first episode of season three, and I'm like really taking my time with this series because I actually I really really like it. Um, sometimes I'll watch like three or four episodes in a day, and then I'll like give it a break for a few days. I'm like, man, that was a lot. That was like a lot to take in. <laughs> so like, I can't imagine being the the week to week viewer. Yeah. Um, 
Sometimes when you blow through a show, like a good show like that, you almost feel bad about it. Like when I watched Game of Thrones in like a month, all seven seasons. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't you weren't there, and we were all like we suffering like, for like John a year. Snow is dead. Everyone knows. You gotta know. Yeah, John you just Snow dive right into it. Like, oh yeah, I'm a Game of Thrones fan. Yeah. Oh yeah. How long, yeah, how long are you watching it? <laughs> set our six seasons in fucking like a month and like. Probably like thirty five days. <laughs> like it's six episodes a day, <laughs> like till like four or five a.m. Then wake up at like ten and watch like three before work. So there is a trope that uh, that not only exists in Attack on Titan, but it exists in like a ton of shows, right? So while I'm watching Attack on Titan, sometimes they'll just like introduce a character not really introduce them but they were there and i'm like oh you know i'm watching and i'm i'm reading like subtitles like their name I'm like, oh they give that character a name they didn't give him man 21a or something they gave him a name i'm like i wonder why they did that and then boom that character dies in that episode <laughs> or like that character resurfaces later and then has a backstory and then something crazy happens to them i'm like this happens all the time like wh- why did they do that? <laughs> like yeah I-, I hate that kind of trope where they, um, yeah, they do have a character kind of linger in the background, or they'll show up for an episode, and you're like, oh, I wonder why this character is here. Oh, they're for fodder, or, you know, to um, complete some kind of plot point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they do that quite a bit in this show. But other than that, I really like it. Um, can't wait to dive more into season three later. But so far, um, yeah, I love that this anime doesn't have a ton of filler. <laughs> like, everything matters. Every episode progresses the story, and... Um, yeah, I really uh, ship a couple of characters, and uh, I hope things end up well. Let's hear them. Uh, Only Tyler knows. <laughs> let's hear them. Let's hear them. Uh, well, obviously, I love Mikasa with Aaron, um, but I don't think that's going to work out. I mean, but uh, they had their moments together, and I'm just like, wow, man, I want them to be together. I'm like going to tear up and like, <laughs> like, come on, you two, like, do something, you know, like, show your love for each other. Um, I like uh, Ymir with uh, Krista. They're really good. Um, like That's duo. my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I, favorite. I like that duo. Um, I like. Uh, uh, yeah, I like some of the others, like solo characters. You know, like Hani and, and Sasha Browse and um, Jean. I like Hannes as well. Even if Is he's Sasha only in a head, the one who eats a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah I love Sasha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like I like Sasha too, and um, yeah. Levi. Ooh, Levi's Captain cool. Levi. I like Captain Levi and I like uh, Commander Irvin. That's He's a pair, really right? great. Yeah, they're really <laughs> fantastic uh, characters. <laughs> so yeah, this is what I love about this series is just it makes me attached to the characters. Like, and um, and I'm watching an English dub, so like before anyone judges me, okay, the English dub is actually really good. It's it actually is. really good. All the like, voice acting good. is fantastic. Um, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much if I watched the Japanese language version. No, no offense to all the um, <clears throat> yeah the OGs out there. The shitty um, thing is, I'm caught up now, and it I think they take like a month in between episode releases to like dub it. Yeah. So like when a new episode comes out, you can watch it, but you have to watch the sub. And I'm right. like, I did the same thing. I wish I would have watched it right. subbed because then I could be watching it like. When each episode comes out, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Max at it again. Yeah, my dog just headbutted the shit out of our door. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, no, now I don't like. I'm not going to watch it subbed just because I'm so used to the dub. Mm-hmm. It'll just yeah. I have a level of attachment to the voice actors already so like it's mm-hmm. kind of hard for me to like watch a subtitled J- japanese language one when it just doesn't feel the same yeah i, I feel like i'm kind of grappling with that because i started watching season four like a few oh, weeks nice. ago i'm oh, on wow. like episode four right now and i'm watching it on hulu which has only the the subs on it and uh, it doesn't have any of the english dub on there yet? no it doesn't oh, have the wow. english really? dub on there right now um but yeah like just That's crazy, because there's like 20 episodes of the dub out on the fourth season. Oh, really? Like at least 15, I want to say. How weird. But they do that. They I noticed that they do that a lot with um, a lot of uh, anime that they have on there. Like with Dragon Ball, it's all like the Japanese subs. But um, yeah, not not to like say that one's better or the other, but like like you said, Richie, um, like I, I started watching it with the dub as well. And I grew, like, really attached to the voices. And now that I'm watching the Japanese sub, like, season four, like, the final season, it's, like, such a weird that's why I, That's why I don't watch the new episodes. I'm like, it'll just take you out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are, are, are they still coming out with new episodes? Or is yeah, it I heard over? they're doing... It's a two-part final season. No way. See, yeah. I, I am completely lost in season four right now, though. Like, yeah. I'm like, what is going on right now? <laughs> <laughs> it starts getting... Because I think... Season four skips like fast forwards like five or six years. Yeah, I like oh, jumped wow. into it and I'm like, mm-hmm. what is going like, on? Immediately, it's like five years later. Interesting. Well, I'm I'm, I'm excited for uh, the prospect of the series having an ending, which uh, hopefully a good ending. But, um, but yeah. uh, I want to circle back to something that you said too about uh, you know seeing like a trope of like characters being introduced only to like linger in the background to be brought back in and like slaughtered. Mm-hmm. Like I, I started watching um, Attack on Titan and Game of Thrones at like the same time because my friend was really into them, at th- and then I just remember I had the same thing like how you feel like with Sopranos right now, like and how you're like engaging with uh, Attack on Titan right now, Richie, like. I would just binge. Like I think that that was like the beginning of like uh, my experience with like binge watching was with Game of Thrones and with uh, Attack on Titan. I don't really do it anymore, um, but yeah, like that was such a weird. I, I feel like certain shows are so bingeable. Yeah, like Game of Thrones and Attack on Titan are and they, perfect binge shows, and they have very similar mechanics too. Yeah. Very similar. Where Sopranos, I think, isn't. I can only watch like an an episode or two. I'll actually, like, fall asleep because I, I watch it at night. When I was watching Sopranos, like, I would actually get a lot of anxiety before I would watch it. And then as I was watching it, like, uh, there would be, like, certain beats where it, things start to shift in a very dramatic way mm-hmm. that I would just feel myself being pulled in more and more and more. You know, just when I thought I was out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, I was like, okay, I've seen, like, four episodes in a row now. Like, I need to go to bed and not feel... Like, the world is garbage. Yeah. And, like... Sopranos is impressive. I remember there's, like, a side character that Sylvia's engaged with who, like, gets braces finally. And, yeah, like, something happens that episode and Sylvia's like, eh. And then he just pushes his emotions down and I finish watching the episode. like, I'm not happy. I don't want to watch anymore for the day. <laughs> there's a certain, uh... Uh, Tyler, when you get to, like, a certain moment in the show, I'm going to be very curious about, like, what you think about it, but there's, like, so much, I mean, like you mentioned, Pat, like, there's so many, like, one-offs, like, with characters, and like how I mentioned earlier, they just stick with you, like, just because of, like, what they mean to the characters, and, like, what they were trying to do to, like, sort of subvert their patterns, only to, like, 
you know, see if it works out or not in the end. <laughs> and oh my god, dude, it is. Like, I feel like I can tell there's like something like wild about to happen. Oh, <laughs> I wish I'm I like waiting for the episode. I feel like I feel like each show has like one, like like three seasons in. Probably you usually have like some crazy shit go down. And like the thing, well, another thing that I love about the series too is that it goes so beyond the formula of like what uh, television was was back then, even to this mm-hmm. day. Like it, uh, it's not afraid to blur the line between. Um, reality and like fantasy in terms of like you know something as you know as uh i something as i guess um that gosh i I don't know what i'm trying to say but uh you know like when compared to like the mobster genre like that is like such a um a hyper violent um almost like glorified genre but then only to have it like turned on its head like time after time in the show it is such a beautiful thing to watch. It's like watching a like a ballet or some shit. <laughs> didn't didn't this surprise? I've seen it used as like an example of like a great prediction prediction of like outrage culture, but on both political spectrums, where like the mobsters are hanging out. It's like, hey, Tone, you see they're canceling Columbus Day. They're like taking away our heritage or something. <laughs> you kill people. Like there's way more pressing issues in the community. But it's like, yeah, just even those characters back then in the two thousands. Or like the predecessors to like the idea of filling our lives with conflict to satisfy whatever void we have as a result of it. It's, I love yeah. the show. I gotta watch it again. It's interesting you say that too because like not only does it explore that, but it also explores the repercussions of the community that it actually affects. It doesn't affect Tony or like any of them. Like if Columbus Day is canceled, but like it does affect the people who are like trying to get it canceled or like trying to uh, remove it as a national holiday and like i don't know you see all of their actions like and they just do it for pure um purely uh, egotistical reasons yeah. and then like it just it's so oh my god it's like what are you doing to this community <laughs> like <laughs> yeah but that being said uh, let's segue into our feature review of Solaris, a 1972 uh, Soviet-Russian film by Andrei Tarkovsky.
Kevin, you picked this film. Would you like to talk about? Yes. Uh, this is the second Tarkovsky movie that we've talked about. Although I don't, I don't think we'll ever release the Stalker episode. <laughs> that was like a, a rough, or that was like a that was like one of the earliest episodes we recorded. That's deep in the archives. Yeah, yeah. we were still we were still finding our footing, <laughs> sound wise. But um, yeah, so I wanted to pick Solaris because I. I don't know. This this movie holds like a very special place in my heart. I remember um, in high school, I was like looking up like lists of uh, you know best movies of this genre or whatever because I like that was like uh, the period of time where I first discovered cinema outside of um, you know engaging with cinema to like try and. I don't know, like learn more about myself as well as the world rather than just for purely entertainment purposes. And I saw that this was at like, you know, the top of like a list of some random website that had like, you know, it was just a random forum at that time. Um, and so I gave it a shot. I think I was like 16 at the time and I fell asleep <laughs> like probably two or three times during the movie. And it took me like a few days to finish it because and I think in hindsight, the reason why I why it had that effect on me is because it was just something I ha had no experience, you know, watching before, like a, a really high concept movie like this that deals with um, that tries to transcend its boundaries as a sci-fi film. And uh, after watching it, it took me like a week where I just digested, you know, bits and moments of it, and I couldn't really put into words why it was having this effect on me. It was mainly the images and the visual poetry of it all that really stood with me. And then I remember watching it again and just absolutely loving every moment of it. And I've seen this movie about over 10 times now. And each time that I watch it, it's one of those rare, um, rare things that I come in, that I, that I've come across where, um, I can discover something new about it. And I love that so much about this movie. And, um, I also like listened to some of the commentary on this movie as well, which I, it just completely blew me away. Like the level of detail that, and, and the restrictions that they had on this movie while making it just absolutely blew my mind. And I think that, um, uh, one other thing that I love about this movie is its ability to explore science fiction but in a very humane way and i mean that by uh exploring the cosmos and wanting to inspire hope and uh and and also uh courage in terms of uh exploring the unknown whether in a you know um interpersonal way or in a uh, existential way and it also shows grief and like the pain of nostalgia and like longing for, um, uh, you know, wanting to return to some sort of uh, primal state of of uh, existing in the present and being one with nature and all of these things. Like my, like I said, like my little high school teenage mind was not prepared for this movie, and you know, here I am, uh, like ten years later. And it's still, I consider it to be one of my all-time favorite movies. And um, I mentioned to you guys earlier, too, like Tarkovsky himself considered this to be one of his weakest movies. And 
and I believe the reason he cited for that is because it didn't transcend the genre like he was hoping to. Like he he considered Stalker to be the one to do that. Um, and I and I also read the book too, um, Solaris by Stanislaw Lem, which was uh, Tarkovsky, and um, he had a co-writer on on this one. They acquired the rights to it back in um, you know the Soviet Union, and Tarkovsky added a whole prologue to it which is the whole all the scenes on earth and that was not in the in the book like whatsoever because Lem's stance on the on uh Solaris was focusing on um a lot more of the scientific uh findings of you know and uh, also the discussion around that you know finding like a sentient planet and how does humankind like actually progress um or how do they engage with it with the problem with the problem of like immortality and all of these different things whereas Tarkovsky took a much more spiritual um nostalgic approach to it so yeah Tarkovsky does the great thing science fiction the ones I like at least is like how the ship runs doesn't matter why this happens is it's all backdrop for the message and yeah like you said like I think Lem's like if we find a sentient planet like how do we cope with that and Tarkovsky's saying like well, there's sentient people all around us. How do we cope with each other? And characters need to, like, he's still saying, like, we're not beyond each other. We're not ready for planets. And I feel like that's, like, a whole era or aura the film gives off. I really enjoy this one still. I've only seen, like, a handful of his films. But, yeah, I just, yeah, even though it's a little, the effects aren't neat, neat, it's really good. Yeah, and I think for um, new viewers to... Um, our podcast, uh, I would give a quick synopsis of Solaris. If you haven't uh, heard his film, definitely watch it. Um, Solaris is about a psychologist who is sent to a space station orbiting a planet called Solaris to investigate the death of a doctor and the mental problems of uh, cosmonauts on the station. Um, I think it's awesome, like how... Uh like connected to this movie you are like after seeing because this and stalker are the only two tarkovsky movies that i've seen and after watching both of them like just like watching like your work in cinema i can i like see so much tarkovsky now it's <laughs> fucking crazy <laughs> which is like great because i'm like if you're like that's what you're like supposed to do you know like take from like the best filmmakers and put in your own work and uh yeah now i'm like oh my god fucking kevin's got it like that's uh, like all the like the long takes and like dude his cinematography is just so amazing yeah, i remember like the first shot like it's just like the uh the like bush in the water like looks like it's like like just like blowing in a river and i was just like i remember i literally said i was like oh my god because me, me and abby were watching it and um she was just fucking around because it was like a long like intro of credits or whatever and she was just fucking around and she was like this movie fucking sucks (laughs) (laughs) you're just seeing reeds flowing underwater (laughs) no but then that was before that shot came on then she's like and then i was like oh no this movie's sick (laughs) but uh yeah no i freaking yeah i love this movie for sure like it's good it's a five out of five for me you you bring up a really good point with the cinematography too, um, Tyler. Uh, Just like the whole first sequence, like that that like tilt. I think we use that as one of the stills in uh, on our post of him like 
with the fog and like those like brush brush around him. Yeah, he's like staring into the pond, and then he like finally stands up. Mm-hmm. And no, like that was one of the things that stood out to me the most too. Upon like first viewing, it was like the images and the sound, and also you know of course the combination of the two. It wasn't necessarily the story um, or the. Uh, or the philosophical musings that they had in it. It was mainly um, the feel of the movie that stood out to me. And I feel like that's the reason why I've uh, really enjoyed engaging with Tarkovsky's works. Um, I've only, I've seen, I've only, I'm still holding on to like a few of his movies to watch at like when I need to watch them because I found that like um, during very uh, troubling or I guess during very uh, aimless times in my life, I like to look to movies like this for guidance and for also for um, reassurance in like certain convictions and whatnot. And um, also uh, the the use of um, you, Tarkovsky's use of like image and sound and just combining the two to create. Um, I, I believe that he exemplifies like cinema and like exalts it in a way to where it elevates it because um cinema is still like a very young art form and you have like something that was not only like based upon like paintings and like still images and um all these other things but you have to like i don't know it deals with like motion and like sonic frequencies that are like ever shifting and it delves into the dream state and i feel like he did a lot of great work in terms of being able to explore what cinema is capable of producing, which is a return to spirituality, in a sense, and also teaching people um, through an immortal medium, pretty much, um, how to go about living and, you know, learning from, like, or being able to live a lifetime in, like, the span of, like, a feature-length movie. And, uh, yeah, like I said, the... It was like the the initial impression of this movie that really stuck with me. And uh, going back to what you were saying about the cinematography, Earth looks so alien. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that in the beginning. I was like, wait, are we already on Solaris? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And um, Vadim Yusov, he was the cinematographer for this movie. Um, I firmly believe that he is pivotal in terms of uh, Tarkovsky's legacy in terms of style and like what he would ultimately be known for doing like the long takes um very minimal editing um also like the framing style and everything like that like you saw like i believe he worked on um steamroller and the violin ivan's childhood solaris and then i think after this movie or no it he might have worked on mirror as well i'm not sure but ever since like that movie oh he also did andre andre rubliev um i think it was after solaris that that was when the partnership ended but since then like tarkovsky like just stuck by that visual flow because it worked so well for what he was trying to do and i think that like a huge portion of this movie would not have been the same had it not been for Yusov's cinematography because like the long takes that were um done uh I was I was listening on the commentary uh because of the budgetary constraints that got like slashed in half by the uh by the Soviet government um they had to do often well that's why they resorted to long takes because um they didn't have that much film to work with and they also like when it came to certain scenes, it was mostly done in single takes, 
Like, it was either done in one to two takes, and that was it. Which is absolutely insane, right? Yeah, there's one towards the end, I think, where there's a sudden... There's, like, a sudden cut, but the frame's the same. But there's, like, a jarring cut between he says something, and then there's, like, slight movement, and then he delivers his next line. So I can see that, yeah, the budget really causes that stuff to happen. When it's, like, you gotta pick one of the two takes and blend them however you can. Which is, is like, uh, what you were saying about, like, uh, the special effects, like, earlier, like, how... And that, uh, one thing, one other thing, sorry if I'm going on a huge rant right now, um, but um, one other thing that uh, I heard about in the commentary was when it was first introduced to American audiences, or Western audiences, I should say, it was brought in as like the, basically um, a Soviet 2001, a space odyssey. And so people were like going in, you know, thinking that they're going to see like this magnum like opus of a movie where it just like is elevated to like Kubrick's level of like precision and um, almost like asceticism. And um, but then they get like this movie that had like such a poor dub and like poor like subtitles when it came out that people just did. I think so. Well, no, I don't know if maybe. but I know that like the subtitles were bad, or the translation was badly butchered, and there wasn't like an actual decent copy of it until like the nineties, which wow. was like long after like Tarkovsky died, and like <laughs> I thought that was absolutely like twenty insane. years later. But um, another thing too is that like back in like uh, Russia, is that they showed this movie in like certain art houses for like ten years, and it developed like a huge cult following. Which I was like, whoa, like, that's crazy considering, you know, it was in the Soviet Union where there was so much censorship at the time. Like, you, um, hold up, last thing I'll say about this. Um, uh, the reason why he potentially went with, like, the sci-fi genre this, this time around as opposed to Andrei Rublev, which was a religious movie, like a heavily religious movie, um, is because sci-fi was seen as safe to explore because you didn't have the risk of, you know, um, subversion, politics, um, any sort of, um, thing that could slander the government in power. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's why all the characters have, they don't have Russian names. They have very, you know, like snout, like for snow, Sartorius, like these are all completely like, who knows what society this they live in or anything like that. But yeah. Wow. That's an interesting tidbit there. I didn't, that I wouldn't have known about at all. Wow. Um, yeah, I really love uh, the long takes in this movie. I like that Tarkovsky like um, immerses you as a viewer into like uh, like specific scenes, like in the beginning when um, Chris uh, Kelvin, the, uh, our protagonist, he's watching the uh, the press conference of uh, Burton's um, report. And, uh, yeah, I, I was so, like, I don't know, somewhat confused at times when watching that because when, you know that they're watching something, but then, like, when it cuts to the actual footage, like, the way they filmed it, like, sometimes it would be in Burton's point of view and he's looking at, like, the other, um, I guess, uh, officers or the people that are uh, questioning him. And I'm like, well, I'm so confused. Like, what? Suddenly I'm in his point of view, like, you know, because we're watching, like, an actual footage, but, like... Yeah, just the way he films it and the way he, uh, the way it's edited, it makes you feel like you were there. Um, yeah, or uh, in the beginning when the little boy says hello to um, the girl, and then there's like a little pause, and she just like smiles at him, and like 
I don't know why they just like zoomed into her face and she says hello you know I'm just like those are like very small moments that I like remember like why did he do that I have <laughs> I have a theory behind that but I'll yeah um no you bring up a really good point though especially with the the report and like how it was filmed because they use different uh formats to record in like with black and white which is weird because even the black and white has like a bluish tone to it it It, does yeah i I thought it looked great like i don't know why but like it like sticks with me but um yeah um burton is such an interesting character because not only was he able to he had this this insane interaction with like a huge sentient planet and he somehow came out of it on the other side you know with the sanity in check and he returns to earth a much old you know he's much older now and here he is trying to um visit and like kind of warn Kel- you know chris in a way of what to expect with uh with everything and I don't know, like, the arguments that were being used against Burton, you know, claiming that, you know, oh, well, how do you know it wasn't just, you know, an apparition or, like, whatever it was, and, but through the, uh, the recounting of the trial, it's like he's immortalized in this, in this period of time, and it's so weird the way that it's filmed, because, you know, there's little to no cutting, um, and I love that about, his work, it, I think it's like in in line with transcendental filmmaking. It purposely like slows you down to meet the pace of the present moment in the movie at that time, to where you experience every stimuli, um, every sound, you know, every every little every little thing and emotion that the character is going through at that time. And I think that that's such a wonderful way of being able to experience something with you know, another character or even a person is to live with them in that moment. And I felt like I was in the trial with Burton as, you know, you know, trying to defend his claim and here, and I love the juxtaposition of like, it's a younger self and then it cuts to like his older face and you could just see how like defeated he is. And I don't know. I like Burton the most probably. And, uh, like what you said with the sci-fi being a safer genre, Burton is like a full-on like dissident aspect. Like he, he he wants ethical use of science and the government in a way. His uh, his uh, public press conference is like a tribunal in ways. The great footage when they play the footage is like oh like some guys is that is that all the footage and like someone else answers for him and he just like looks like confused and he says like I didn't expect this to happen. So it's like undertones that he's being censored or it's being brushed under the rug. And he's aware of that as well as like his press conference. He's immortalized in that. And, but it's like a, a dissidence immortal immortalization. He's a coward. He's an idiot. He's a scaredy cat of the planet. We're just studying it. We can do a, we can shoot rays at it. It's good. <laughs> but he's actually like a kind hearted soul who's trying to argue. Like we need to do what's right. This science, this planet is deserving of a certain weight that we're not giving it because other people in charge. Right? I could see if he's doing like a in the Soviet Union film, they're going, "Nah, you can't be doing that." Mm-hmm. And then uh, this is my interpretation. I could be completely wrong or forget, but I love the car scene with Burton, and yeah. then the orphaned son. Is that the orphaned son with him? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, he's my favorite character then by far. Yeah, I just love that whole part in that character. It's interesting that you say that um, the car ride with Burton is your favorite, is like one of your favorite moments because like a lot of people hate that scene. Okay, is that when there's like the like 
I don't want to call it a time lapse because I think it was like in real time, but it's like they're just you're following them in traffic, and then there's like that one cut at that, the end, that jarring cut where it's like it's like a huge like wide shot, and you just see like the whole city and all mm-hmm. and all the traffic. Mm-hmm. I was like, I swear, I was like taking like out of body right there. That shit was crazy. Yeah, Isn't it was that, like a five minute long. Scene. It was so long, and yeah. I was just like totally for some reason just like like in it like i was like so drawn in and then that yeah. cut happens and it like literally is like so like jarring but in like the best way yeah absolutely and i think that uh one of the effects that i i felt from that i usually feel from that sequence is here you have uh chris on his last day on earth at his dasha which is like a vacation home with his parents and stuff like out in the russian wilderness and here he is, like, just observing nature and being one with it. Like, there's even that, like, little tidbit where it starts raining. Mm-hmm. And because I guess that, like, in Russia, in that area that they were in, rain would just come and go randomly. And here he is just, like, sitting down, experiencing, you know, watching nature flow through time. And I think that that's such a beautiful thing to do to just be present and to not think too deeply into what's going on around you and just being a part of the flow. Yeah, I think what Tarkovsky uh, does a really great job with and um, his cinematographer Vadim Yusuf is like um, embedding us into the environment. Like uh, the world and the environment is just as important as the characters. So I love that when we see people talking and you see, you look out the window, you see like giant cloud or like clouds or like fog or something. Right. And I'm like, man, that's so eerie. Like, um, the way they just give you a glimpse, you know, into the window of that world. Like, my God, this is like almost post apocalyptic. Like, like you can see how, um, Solaris, uh, is affecting, uh, where they live, you know, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And another thing, too, about um, what you're saying about the environment being just as important is a lot of the art deck, the um, art direction in this, too, there was so much, uh, even on the space station, like, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, there is so many uh, statues, like, of uh, ancient uh, Greek busts of, like, philosophers and, like, art figurines, and you have various books, like, uh, for instance, Faust and Don Quixote, and, like, all of these... Uh, testaments to like humankind's greatness are like inside of uh, Chris's parents' home, and also like you see like a I think there was like a frame like butterfly, and mm-hmm. um, also like a I don't know. There's just so many like unique tidbits inside of the house and on the space station too, and I I like the pro. I feel like this movie would not work without the prologue um, because. I don't know, there's just something so beautiful about it because, um, like I was saying earlier, we start off with Chris inside of this vacation home saying goodbye to Earth. You know, he ha- he has hardly any attachments to Earth at this point. Um, uh, and you can see that there's a bunch of tension between him and his father. And whenever they're talking to each other, they never talk directly at one another. They walk around one another and their backs are to each other. And... Um, you have like the sanctuary, but then when Burton appears, Chris becomes like very antagonistic because he's like, Oh, well, why of all days did you decide to bring him, you know, today? Like, I want to, because you could tell that like he was having some sort of um, resentment towards his father for, you know, shutting off the moment of like closeness and like that he was like searching for before he leaves. 
you know, if he ever even comes back again. And then Burton just feels even more defeated by this because he was just trying to be the beacon of, of morality and of upstanding morality for Chris to like hold on to because Chris himself, he's like, I get the notion that he is going there to just open and shut case, just like close down the station, just sign it off. And then Burton's trying to be like, oh no, like, you know, just, you won't know until you get there. And so Burton is like bringing his child or this orphan child with him through that car ride. And here he is going from this uh, spiritualistic um, uh, homestead back into the unknown of humanity where technology is creating even more division between the bonds that people share. And the fact that it's in Japan, which is like one of the most, at that time, and even today, it's like one of the most uh, sprawling metropolises of the world. And that one shot you were talking about, Tyler, where it cuts to that, and it's just like the huge highway system of Tokyo, I think. Um, and you just see all of these different cars, and then here he is becoming yet another unknown. I thought that that was so powerful. Yeah, I like Burton a lot. And another thing about that sequence, too, I feel like it appears later on in Stalker. Like, that same thing. Um, do you guys remember that scene where um, where they're riding the train car? Oh, yeah. 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 It was very reminiscent of that. You're right. In Stalker, it's more clear-cut. Like, when you leave the sepia-toned edge of the zone, and then you're in the zone, it's like, oh, my God, thank God, my eyes. <laughs> in, Sol- uh, in Solaris, I enjoyed the... It's like the black and white is kind of blue, and then there's also just blue and black, mm-hmm. and the sepia tone only, and just, yeah, the color mm-hmm. range, and how fluid it shifts is such a refreshing thing, where I think it breaks up and keeps the view fresh. Mm-hmm. There was um, also one moment that I really enjoyed, too, that I didn't catch upon like uh, prior viewings. I was always confused about the horse, and the white appeared. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was wondering. Oh yeah, that. and then the the little boy was afraid of the horse. Yeah, I don't think like he's never like really seen one, or he's just really afraid of a horse, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like he was scared of it because like he was only his his the only world he knows is that of like the urban landscape, mm-hmm. and to see something so majestic and uh, like very uh, large and just like a, a very strange looking creature, it like sends him into like to where he like reverts back to like fear. But then it like clashes with our with our introduction to the horse, which it's just roaming around this little homestead, mm-hmm. and it's just being a horse, and it's just so beautiful. But then we see it like tied up inside of this little shack, and it's like covered in shadow. And I don't know. I just thought that that was such like a. It like has to deal with like the fear of um, of being alone in solitude in a way. Um, cause I've seen like interviews with Tarkovsky where he's like always touting off about, um, you know, having to return back to like solitude in order to do like deep spiritual work and how, um, at the time where he, in these interviews, he was saying how the youth ha- has like a problem with like not being able to go out in nature and just be alone and to like actually, um, contemplate like their own existence, which I know it could sound insanely pretentious and, all of these other things, but I think that there's a lot of, um, there is, there is a lot of, uh, good intention implied in that thought. And just to show you like, Hey, nature is a beautiful thing. 
It's we don't have to be terrified of it. We don't have to try and dominate it. We don't have to try and alter its shape into something that we see more fit. And I think uh, Chris is the opposite of that. Where like he mentions to Burton, or when he was antagonizing him, how he wants to like uh, radiate the ocean. I'm like, oh, is that right? I think that's what he was trying to say to him, mm-hmm. right? And uh, yeah. I was like, man, this guy's like a psychopath or something like why would you say that to this man after what he's uh been through mm-hmm. um yeah so oh hello okay <laughs> well we have mac in this room and he does not want to leave he wants to partake in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a segue into our ratings and then let's just go full on spoilers i'm gonna you already know. This is a five out of five for me. Um, you already know. Yeah, I'm not even. Yeah, I feel like. Yeah, I feel like we. I'm five out of five. If we could just jump right into it. <laughs> I'm like a four point five on this one. I like some of his other movies better, but that's it. I'm at a four out of five. Um, yeah, I definitely need to. It's a film that I need to rewatch eventually again because um, there's just so much for me to take and. Uh, um, definitely could have used a lot more Burton. I thought it would be more. I, th- I, th- I thought he would have more of an expansive role, but um, yeah, I guess once we get introduced to like the other characters, like the scientist and Hari and stuff, like uh, I was kind of caught off guard. I'm like, okay, who are these characters now? Like, oh, what? Like the transition was a uh, kind of jarring for me. But um, I did enjoy like the journey and like this odyssey that uh, Chris takes. And man, it was it was quite the trip and. Definitely one, yeah, one of the best like sci-fi films I've ever watched. So, Spoiler time. So, um, Kevin, I wanted to ask you, we did talk about it a bit before I think we started this episode. Um, you mentioned that Tarkovsky had some opinions about uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Yes. Um, I believe that him, Vadim Yusov, and um, I think the writer, the additional, I think his name is... Um, but anyway, they he made them all watch 2001 before filming this movie, and they absolutely despised it. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I'm sure that because uh, I know that like um, 
Tarkovsky and Kubrick like both thought highly of each other's work, but just in terms of what 2001 was, he absolutely he's like, no, we have to make the complete no, I don't want to Solaris to be anything like this, which I think is such a unique I don't know because like when I think of like space themed movies, I think of of course 2001 and Solaris. Mm-hmm. Um of course there are other ones, but like those are the two big two that come to me, but they're completely inverse. Yes. Yeah. Like one I I think that uh what Kubrick was going for was exploring this very precise image of what he deemed humanity to be, which was a very prime evil. It's, no? Yeah, it's very ink fuck that word. It's very small and it's very full of faults. Where I think Tarkovsky does like the inverse and like there's even parallels between the planet Solaris and the monolith. It's like in our interaction with that, like in two thousand one they're like there's like a nomadic homage to go worship the monolith or to go to the spot deemed by the monolith. And Solaris, the Solaris is just uh, existing in space, and then humans go there, and maybe there's an exchange between the two or whatever. But the real stuff is about the growth of the individual. It's not monolith bestowing growth. It's like an internal constant progress. So yeah, I think they have big inverse meanings. I I agree. I, I think that 2001, I think takes almost like more of a cold approach. Like the even the human characters don't feel like actual human characters like i think how is it feels like he has a bigger personality than any of the other like um characters that are in space um even the way they move almost feels robotic um yeah i think kubrick is focused more on like the technical aspect uh yeah which is so like different. the grandiose of it mm-hmm. well uh i think to Cooper's credit, Hal is like the most endearing character of 2001. It's like he's exploring something with Hal that's similar to Solaris. Like Hal and Hari and all that. But it's, yeah, I think there's big differences, some similarities. And even like the, in Solaris, there's no Cold War outright energy. Mm-hmm. But I think in 2001, isn't there the, like the pseudo airport and space scene where the main character is being like, kind of interrogated when he sits for lunch with the people and they're trying to ask like what's your mission what are you doing it's like big oh, code war mm-hmm. grifting or probing by the other side it's like there's an adversarial aspect in humanity still in in 2001 where in solaris it's just he's in japan burton's in japan i don't even know where chris is houses it's somewhere in the forest it's yeah it's just borders are gone and yeah yeah, I could see. You probably do a whole movie on how the movies are similar and different. But yeah, mm-hmm. I wonder what like the difference in just like budget is. Oh, it was probably massive. Because um, I know that um, with this movie, they started out with like a decent budget, but then it got cut in half, like throughout its filming, and they had to, which is why they had to like revert back to like a lot of a uh, single or one to two take sequences. And also, like, the costuming and even the set design, too. Like, and, of course, the special effects, they're all, like, very rudimentary. Like, they're just there to get the point across. Like, even with, like, the space uh, sequence. Like, we don't have this grandiose, like, um, uh, sequence where, you know, Chris is being launched out into space. 
And we have, like, the opera playing in the background. Like, yeah, there's the lady who's bringing everyone drinks, and she's, like, walking on the wall. Yeah. We don't really need that in Solaris. It's, like, all we get is a very extreme close-up of, like, uh, Chris's eyes, and the rest of his face is just hidden in darkness, and he's, like, very, like... You can tell that it's very cooped up, and it's not, like, that's the thing I love about technology's role in this movie, is it's very flawed, it's very open, it's very withered, it's very, it's just torn, like, it's held together with, like, sticks and twigs. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, 2001 had a 10.5 million budget, and Solaris had $800,000 budget. Oh, wow. damn, that's crazy. It's like tenth. Yeah. See, you can do a lot. <laughs> no budget. Yeah, that ten and a half million back then was a lot of money. I think that's why I like it more. Like, I think that's why I just chalked it up as a five. Like, I know this is for sure a movie I would probably need to watch like three or four times to really like grasp it. Like, I, right now, I feel like I can't say anything like fully grasp it. Yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I feel like after watching it, I just knew I'm like, this is a masterpiece, and everyone should watch this movie. I can like Kevin when you brought up the um the scene where he's like in the shadow and you see his eyes, it reminds me of like the classic uh cart uh like animated cartoons. I forgot which ones, but like when they were hiding like in the shadows, you just see their eyes. Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that's the first thing I thought of. <laughs> but obviously this one they do it a lot more like uh poetically in this one. Like it's a lot more cinematic and it's very cool. <laughs> yeah, but that's I don't know why I just thought of that. <laughs> I think the thing that um, is also one of the, the film-saving graces is the score by Edward Artemyev, I think. And um, he, his music, I, I believe that he did the music for this movie, Stalker, and maybe a few others, I'm not sure. But I know that he for sure did it for those two. But he relies heavily on the synth. And um, the main theme of the movie, which is like by Bach... Um, which roughly trans uh, which roughly translates out to um, oh no I'm not even going to try bothering with it but <laughs> it's such the the theme itself embodies the movie easily like the entire feel of it has this very deep bittersweet longing feeling to it and this theme has also been used in a few other movies as well um, in Ida I believe it plays out in the end and also in uh michael hanukkah's amour i think um but yeah this movie i mean this this song it, whenever i'm writing well i remember like for uh for the last thing that i was writing i just listened to the song on repeat <laughs> and it was like a 12 minute long loop <laughs> and, it, and it was uh the one that had um a bunch of i think it was the the one that was on the soundtrack where it had a bunch of like foley involved in it too like it had water dripping and like birds flapping and like all these other things but um the sound design of this entire movie is like he always does this thing with water dripping and it's like everything else is just so isolated but you just hear water dripping and i don't know what it does to me whenever i hear it but it just conjures up like these very strange uh, bittersweet emotions within me and this movie is like it's almost like a lamentation of uh of you know past regret and grief and the song perfectly encapsulates it 
just by like the chords it uses and like the overall feeling of it and just because of the fact that it's played on a synth rather than um you know it's it's original instrument it adds like this whole like it elevates it in that sci-fi genre which i feel adds like a whole other like timeless feel to it and yeah without the sound design i feel like it would not have been nearly as good <laughs> Yeah, without that song, it wouldn't have been nearly as good. Mm -mm. And that song, when it comes in, ooh, mm -hmm. it goes hard. Like, there's so mm -hmm. many moments. Like, when um, Chris and Hottie are uh, looking at the painting. Mm -hmm. And then even in the ending, oh, my God. Like, I don't even want to talk about the ending right now. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, that ending. <laughs> okay, yeah. We'll wait. We'll wait. <laughs> so, um. I mean, uh, oh gosh, one one thing that uh, I was also drawn into with this movie was uh, Tarkovsky's use of elliptical storytelling, which is where you move forward in the narrative and then you take this whole other like side path and do like a full loop around it and then you progress forward into it. And there's so many um, curves or full cycles that are completed in this movie that it ends up creating like this weird. Um, like interwoven narrative where it like it's it's all about like the final piece of it all it's it's like a fugue in a way where it has like it's like boiled down to like two or like three main themes and that's the overall piece like it's about the completion of it rather than the mosaic or the 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 pieces that make up the overall mosaic um and when we finally get to the space station it takes like a full like 180 in terms of like it gets absurd <laughs> it's crazy i'm like like every every time he walks into like another room or a lab i'm just like it's like another world <laughs> that's like occupied by these like crazy mad scientists and i'm just wondering like what the hell is satorius up to like what's up with that the whole like I yeah i don't i had no idea what was going on with that like some human experiment or something or is he like i don't know yeah uh with satorius i just think of like it's, an, it's another like maybe not dissident but like it's going against the state system because satorius plays in the ascent like a collaborator with the nazi in like uh the belarusia conflict and in that one he's like the he's like the cold calculated scientist and there's like photos of kids on the wall like oh those are the I forget the third scientist's name oh snout snout, snout? Mm -hmm. yeah like, oh, and then Gibberry yeah Gibberian. what does he say he's, he's like oh those are kids and he's like oh yeah three of them oh those those are snouts it's like oh he's like dissecting them in the back room that we're not allowed into like horror shows are going on back there like that's how each yeah each person each crew member is being broken mentally in different ways like a uh, Gabrian oh Gibberian Gibberian like, yeah that's like a great there's like the young girl looking for him when. Chris enters and he follows it and then he finds him. It's just, yeah, it's like a torture horror show house, fun house, whatever stuff. Yeah, it's, it's like a like, bad carnival ride. That's what they're using all the massive budget on, you know, being up there in space. Like they can afford to just launch a rocket away, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's what I was thinking the whole time. Like every time 
they're like conducting some experiment or they're just doing something up there it's like time is money like just blowing all this money up there <laughs> that's what's like the science fiction aspect like it doesn't matter it's not right. 2001 like because yeah. like how chris gets there alone like like the technology must be so advanced like the mm-hmm. rockets fly themselves essentially yeah yeah there's um i think that with sartorius he is the staunch uh scientist of the group he is in search of truth regardless of the repercussions and i think that you're right in what you're saying about like the actor his name's anatoly solonitsyn and yeah he was also in um mirror and uh, stalker mm-hmm. and also oh gosh yeah you're right pat in the ascent he is brilliant i think that he is easily one of my favorite actors i've ever seen like he just embodies the roles to a T and I don't even like recognize him in them, even though he never changes his, um, like his look that much yeah, besides so in like Andre Rubliev. But, um, yeah, it, he brings like such a, a weight to each role. And in this one, he is like this very cold and calculating scientist who is like, will, who is just in search of truth, regardless of like the horrors of it. And, he like critic. He's quick. He's very quick to criticize uh, Kelvin and his lack of um, uh, obligation and duty mm-hmm. for being on the station. And he like when it comes to Snout, like he's just. I don't even know if he has an opinion of Snout, um, but um, yeah, he's just like this very. But he wants to be. He, like he's he's envious of Chris's. Uh, guests. He's envious of that stuff. He's like a, he wa- he wants to be accepted and in. But like, yeah, he has like a neurotic ob- obsession with science. Mm-hmm. I think towards the end, he's like more melancholy when the guests stop appearing. You could read that as like, oh, he has no more experiments or it could just be like, there's no answers to be gotten and he's just defeated. I, I think that you bring up a really good point there too, because um, in the end, he was searching for something that uh, he could like hold on to. And when he realized that he doesn't even have like the interpersonal relationships that he was so desperately in search of it's like the he faced the cold reality of truth in the end like he got what he wanted and he's so dissatisfied with it in the end yeah i think it's because like he's missing that part of being human as having that like emotional connection or attachment that he envied from from chris because he even though what chris is experiencing is not logical like he knows that his wife is dead but like he still gets to have that again you know where it's like um, sartorius doesn't he's like this cold crazy uh experimenter who you know doesn't use emotions to like it doesn't like uh, interrupt with his experiments he's very cold and logical man and seeing uh chris not uh i guess display the same amount of like ethics as him makes him feel bad and like wow you get to have that and i don't okay yeah yeah yeah, because chris is ultimately i believe he's a psychologist Mm -hmm. and that's why he's like brought on to the space station to like evaluate the you know the mindsets of like each crew member and i think that gabarian had like a similar position if i'm remembering that right and like to be brought on brought into the station that was once populated by you know a few cosmonauts only to like see it like you know, he arrives and there's nobody to greet him. 
Um, he just like has to get out of the space uh, shuttle by his, by himself, and he's like looking around for everyone. And then he finds Snow, who's like, I believe he's drunk in his room, and he's just so caught off guard. Like nobody even knows that he was like there. And um, I don't know. I think that. Um, uh, one thing that um, I noticed about the space station when he first arrives is that everything is just in complete disarray and it's like breaking apart and it's on its complete last limbs and I think that that can be like taken as you know the technological failings because it's like people view technology as like this end-all be-all solution to um, progressing into the future when it's like it was created by human beings who are inherently flawed in nature and i feel like anything that comes out of us is bound to be imperfect like it's just written in our dna and i think that that is i i personally think that that's a very beautiful thing um because it's like when you have something in, with perfection there's no i don't know where's the pursuit in it but then again like that's coming from a flawed mind of in a flawed perspective and it it just has me questioning, like, oh, well, with Sartorius, he was in search of truth, right? Um, but how can you accept truth when you don't have a perfect um, outlook or you don't have uh, you don't have the right um, thinking processes to fully engage with it on, you know, uh, on like a perfect level with it? And I feel like no matter what, you're bound to be dissatisfied with um, existence, if you, you know, do achieve fantasy, if you do achieve perfection, you're always going to, the desire is always going to be there. And I feel like that's what Sartorius is like coming to grips with. Right. And his whole goal of, and I think, uh, Snout makes a remark, like he's like his big research thing now is like finding something to kill the guests, like to destroy the perfect. And, like, he sees that in Hari a lot. Like, she is incapable of taking her own life or being killed, it seems, in the film. And just something about that seems to really drive Strauss crazy. Yeah, because um, they make the remark that uh, she's becoming more and more human with each iteration. Because, of course, there's the first Hari, which was, you know, we find out she killed herself because of Chris's cold demeanor and his uh, lack of warmth that he could give her because I believe that his, his mom, Anna, mm -hmm. which, you know, we catch, you know, a few glimpses of in the photos and the, in the prologue and also various scenes where she appears, which also bears like a striking, a striking resemblance to Hari as well, mm -hmm. which there's also a few, like there's gotta be a mother yeah, complex. And a couple of his films have that like uh Yvonne's childhood mirror mirror for <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Tarkovsky, and, what are you trying to say? <laughs> yeah, and even with Gabarian's um, guest, uh, because in the book, it, I believe it was a tall black woman that Gabarian had for a guest. But in this one, it's a like a teenage child, mm -hmm. which, you know, it's kind of, ooh, like what's going on yeah. with there? And it has like a Lolita-esque feel to it. And um, but with Snow, I believe it's like a, a small child. I believe, or like someone who is constantly doing harm to him because, you know, we see him and he has like this wound on his arm, on his hand and his guest is constantly trying to kill him. Whereas with Sartorius's guest, I believe it's a dwarf, I, I want to say. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not entirely sure what, um, <laughs> what that guy was so funny, the little dwarf guy. <laughs> he like runs out the lab and he just snatches him up. 
Yeah, that yeah. was very I was like, what? strange, <laughs> absurd, and weird that was like and right funny. at the beginning. Yeah, when they get on the station, that might be another harken back to like the Mangala esque. Oh yes, of yeah, of like uh, constantly experimenting with things and never being happy with the outcome of it, or just like the different, like uh, yeah, the dis- the dissection of the difference, the different people, Ooh. like the Mangala with the twins and the other stuff and the horrible Nazi experiments he did. Yeah, because um, Sartorius' whole thing is that he lacks morality. And that's what Chris ends up coming into during his uh, journey to Solaris, I mean, to the space station. Yeah, because before all that, I I thought, I hated Chris because he was so, he was such an asshole to Burton. And uh, he pretty much wanted to destroy, like, the ocean and stuff. And uh, even um, Dr... Gabrarian mm-hmm. agreed with him and wanted him to do the same thing. It's like to drop the radiation into the ocean. So, yeah, but then, you know, seeing Hari, like, changed everything for him. And uh, and uh, Natalia Bondarchuk, uh, I'm, I'm butchering, I'm sorry. But um, I, her performance is my favorite out of everyone in the, uh, yeah, in the cast. And, um, yeah, I love her inclusion in this film like it really uh yeah it helps me just get over chris as the lead like i think that actor is great i just didn't like the character for a while and yeah i needed somebody else like everyone was too crazy for me and i'm like man this this is nuts and then we get hari you know which which um goes back to why sartorius was so upset with her because um chris wasn't even the one to tell her that she wasn't the real hari and Sartorius was. He was like, "Oh well, you're you're just a, an apparition. You know, the real Hardy died. She killed herself. Um, you're just you know a fake being, pretty much." Like Chris didn't even get the chance to tell her. So that was like Sartorius's way of like establishing control and like um, you know pushing his own uh, ego in front of others in order to feel better about himself and. Um, because yeah, like each time, because uh, we have the first Hari who who dies on Earth, the second Hari who Chris sh- launches out into space, <laughs> and he almost got. I love the the practical effects where he like got burned. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. Yeah, that was a really great scene. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah, and then we have the third one who stays with us for you know the the remainder of the movie. But it's like who knows if there's any more. But um. Each time she comes back, she develops even more sentience because the first time that we come across the the guest version of her, we notice that she has a bunch of flaws that the planet didn't get right. You know, the dress doesn't have a seam to pull apart to where she can exit out of the dress. And she also has um, the tear Mm -hmm. on her uh, arm, I believe. And, um, yeah, it just gets, like, certain, like, details wrong each time. But then each time she comes back, it becomes more and more refined. And she ends up coming to grips with the fact that, like, she isn't the real version of Hardy. Like, she's just Chris's... Uh, Side piece. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> she's basically, like, the form that uh, Chris has in his mind, which I think that... um Plato's work of the world of forms plays a huge role in this movie because with his uh, with his work behind you know the, the world of forms, he stated that there is a reality in which there is the perfect form of each and every single object. For instance, like this pen that I'm holding in my hand is not a real pen. This is um, 
you know, it's a flawed pen. It's like there in the other reality, there is a perfect version of a pen, but we can never bring it into this reality that we have because this is not the world of forms. Whereas, um, uh, on, so on the Solaris station, it's basically, um, our reality of this flawed world of forms elevated to where we can actually see our own, um, spiritual, guides and totems in a way that we hold on to appear before our very eyes, but in a very, um, um, in a physical form. And I think that that's absolutely insane. Like I haven't seen that in any movies that I can recall off the top of my head where you have, um, somebody's idea of someone <laughs> like yeah. interacting with them because she isn't the real hottie. Like who knows like how she would have reacted, um, with Chris if she had been replaced with that one. Yeah. I think that's what the painting scenes about with Hari where she's growing more human or whatever. She's, she's accessing the memories inspired by the painting the painting is just a bunch of lines on paper and it's just, yeah, great. Like little musical themed exploration of the form and what's real in the hierarchy of that. Such a good movie. For real. I was thinking I'm just like, it's like I thought for I really thought he was gonna in the end just like stay with her, I guess, and, and just like have her turn into like her own being. Mm-hmm. But it's like would she ever could she ever become like her own being? If that makes sense. You know, I think that you bring up a really good um thought on that because I was I was thinking about this thing the other day too, where it's like isn't AI because she's not like she's the new, the old Hari, but she's like, I guess just a... She's artificial. I don't even think she's artificial, In, in a way, because it, yeah. she is created from his own yeah. past. But, but does but that... Like her, I guess maybe her birth is artificial, and then like she mm-hmm. can, as she like experiences life, when is she no longer artificial? Yeah, I so guess she won't be Hari anymore. She'd be a different... She'd just be a new being. Yeah, and I think Chris... At one point, towards the end, he's like, oh, I, I don't care about the old Hari. I love the mm-hmm. you now in front of me. And I think kind of in like a sad trying to save Chris way, she drinks like the liquid nitrogen. A little thing. I'm like, oh, she's like, yeah. It's one of those things of like the Solaris is better than us. Like even its representations of our whatever is like pure in form or pure in consciousness. Or it's like, oh, you can't stay here, Chris. You can't stay here your whole life just to be with me. Like I'm an immortal being or whatever. So it tries to kill itself. Mm. But, yeah, I think she has humanity by then, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, it like gets me thinking. It like it um, prompts this uh, th- this question of uh, what is consciousness, and is an artificially developed consciousness uh, inferior or superior, or even on the same level as um, you know our own consciousness that we have? And um, you know, because like for instance, let's say that you create an AI that has like a full on personality does that not have to what degree does that is that capable of experiencing consciousness and yeah i don't know it's such like a it adds like such a moral ambiguity to things because it's like oh well we'll do these do does ai have rights or do they have rights um do you you don't need like a physical body or like because it's like once once something is created out of nothing which is like death to life. Mm-hmm. Is that not a living being? 
So, like, since Hari is immortal, she can't really ever be human because that's not a human thing, right? Being human is to be born and to live and then to die. And then she was born, she lived, she died, and she came back again. So, like, she transcends being human. She's almost like a freaking a god, you know, a goddess at this point. Well, what's interesting um, is that in the book, uh, her name is... Uh is an anagram for Rhea, which mm. is the goddess of all gods. Um, oh, wow. Well, she was the the Titan mother of all gods in Greek, um, in a uh, in you know Greek religious uh, scriptures and stuff like that. And the fact that you know her name is like Hadia, like she is like she is a god in a way, in that she is able to keep coming back. And um, one thing that um, I wanted to ask you guys was. Um, do you think that Solaris is a benevolent or a malicious planet? Or or do you think that it's trying to establish connection with the cosmonauts on the station? Or is it observing them, observing it? I think it's trying to establish a connection with them. I think it's the latter. I think it's observing. Because isn't the way that they basically get it to stop is they like project... Uh, Chris's like thoughts or his mind to the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like maybe the ocean was, uh, or whatever the, the ocean being was trying to con- like converse with them or talk with them or communicate with them and then was doing it wrong. And it just made it realize, like, oh, I have, to, I have to do this a different way, or I, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, because like um, each time they go to sleep, that's when it peers into their soul and it looks inside of their consciousness to to develop this um, this physical manifestation of their deepest desires, regrets, um, basically like these totems, these walking totems that they hold on to and that never leave them, no matter how many times you kill them. Like they keep they keep coming back as a different iteration. Um, do you think that that's, I mean, you, you mentioned that you think that, well, um, am I right in saying that, uh, your perspective on it is that you believe that it's, um, improving upon the, the initial relations rather than, um, manipulating them? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's malicious for sure. Yeah. My, my read depends on the ending which I have a certain feeling about. So I think it's just observing and trying to make contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with Patrick. Yeah. I think it's more observant than anything. Um, because like everything that's manifesting for all the scientists is only for them. And I think that's what Solaris is just looking at. Is, I mean, it's not like manipulating them. It's more like, I don't know. I think they're kind of like manipulating themselves. That's a good sign. Mm-hmm. Like uh, yeah. Harvey's first appearance, she has the rip purposely to show where the injection was. It feels like... Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Like It's reading for like the most important or imprinted moments. It's not like what's good, what's bad, and it's just shooting it out at them. It's like Stalker with the, uh, the room granting the wishes. It's like the right, room right. doesn't consider the... The reception of the wish is just here's your greatest desire in your heart, and whatever that happens, happens. Mm-hmm. 
See, like when I when I, I feel like each time I watch it, my stance on it changes. For because I remember for the longest time, I was always thinking that the planet itself is like this god that is observing them, um, you know, observing it. And I think that this time around, I think that the planet was genuinely trying to establish some sort of connection with this other sentient form of life because it's a planet that exists out who knows if it's entirely on its own or not and for how long it's been there it's an oceanic planet that has no form of uh other life and who knows if it's like a hive mind where it's like a set of molecules that like communicate with one another instantaneously through like different um forms of bonds because it's such a, a malleable liquid it's almost like consciousness in the form of a planet and if it is anything like the human consciousness it it's like what snout says man needs man and i think that that you know upon discovering that imprint of snout you know saying something like that and who knows how many uh, uh, other occurrences it's it's had with people in the past but once it discovers like the values of each um, human being it tries to manifest it in a way to where it it's like holding up a mirror to each person and with sartorius i feel like he's completely disgusted with his guest because it's him in its most rudimentary form and with snow it's this person who's always trying to sabotage himself uh, or like uh you know shoot himself in the foot in a way and with Chris, it's such a pure and beautiful image, no matter how distorted it is, because it's him, it's like love in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Just pure acceptance and love in the form of Hadi. And um, I think that that's a very beautiful thing, and that's why the planet was so receptive to Chris in um, you know, refining it each and every single time. Because it's like, who knows how long Snout and Sartorius and Gabarian were all on that station. And how many times they've killed their uh, guests. Because Snout mentions, um, you know, oh, oh, she's learning how to sleep. Oh, that's... Or he says, like, the resurrections never get old or something. Mm-hmm. Like, and like tired of seeing them. Yeah, and like, you'll, there will only be continued grief. And like, prolonged, you know, it's just going to get worse from here. And... He's trying his best to to warn Chris because he himself can't even take his own advice. Um, I don't know. I just think that I think that the planet was trying to establish some sort of connection or bond between itself and these other smaller forms of consciousness. I have a thought that connects to the ending. Where I think was this inspired by like the Jungian unconscious oh, object like, and like dreams? I think you told me that once. It could be. Like, that's the vibe I got. So I viewed the planet as, like, the a collective unconscious without people, without, like, a thing to feed into and individuals. And for me, the ending is, like, the acknowledgement of... It's, like, it's all Solaris going, like, oh, I now have the complete system of I'm the collective unconscious planet. And now the islands are forming up, and then these two individuals meet and embrace on the steps, and that's the... Like, happy ending for the planet, and then, yeah. That's my just read on that. See, I... 
that's a that's a really good take on the ending because it's like it can be interpreted in so many ways. There's mm-hmm. no right answer of it, as with like all things, of course. Um, but I don't know. I uh, I love like um, in the ending, like it gets me every single time when Chris is looking in the window and you see, oh, Solaris got one of the details wrong. It's raining indoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it kind of reminds the idea of Solaris. Kind of reminds me of. Um this term called EDM or EMDR therapy, which is uh, something from my favorite show, The OA, uh, kind of connects to is where um, it is like to treat like trauma by reconnecting the client in a safe and measured way to the images, self-doubts, emotions, sensations associated with the trauma. So I think all the characters that are experiencing all these apparitions and things of their past has to do with like something that connects to their trauma. So maybe Solaris is, is a thing that helps people heal. It's like a therapist. You're, I, I think you're absolutely right in that because that's my own personal take with, um, well, I mean, not to sound, yeah. And it's, I, I agree with that take, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, because, by exposing it to, you know, by exposing yourself to, like, all these various forms of trauma with, like, this unique form of therapy that you were mentioning, we're able to confront it to acknowledge its existence and also its power over us. But by doing that, we're able to, you know, it's it's at that point that we determine if we accept it or if we go against it and reject it. Um, and I think that in terms of Sartorius and Snout and even Gabarian, um, they all rejected these guests in, you know, for one reason or another, whereas Chris finally accepts it. He says that, um, you know, this is his only truth, like compared to everything, which I think is absolutely beautiful because Mm -hmm. Solaris was capable of teaching Chris how to love by reflecting a mirror at himself and being like, Hey, we'll start with yourself. And I feel like if, if, like what Snout says, um, there's this, oh gosh, let me see if I can find it. It's, uh, during the, the scene where, uh, it's his birthday party <laughs> and, um, oh gosh. Oh yeah. He says, um, we have no interest in conquering the cosmos. We want to extend the earth to its borders of the cosmos. We don't know what to do with other worlds. We don't need other worlds. We need a mirror. We struggle for contact, but we'll never find it. We're in the foolish human predicament of striving for a goal that he fears that he has no need for. Man needs man. And I don't know. I think that just in terms of like the human condition, it's such a, I don't know. It all starts with, with the self, which sounds very egotistical, but it's like, depending on one's viewpoint, we we have a very egotistical life in that we experience it from one perspective. I mean, we're capable of seeing it from different perspectives, but we can never experience it fully, which I think is the beauty of cinema in that it gives us this tool to project our consciousness into this, um, this dark room where we, it's almost like a womb where it's like full of like sounds and like, uh, imagination and like in, in imagery and like all these different things that are like capable of permeating our thoughts and getting to us at our core because of the combination of everything. And uh, with Solaris, I think that it accomplishes its initial goal 
even in its own destruction in a way by uh, Sartorius, you know, inflicting the radiation or no, the encephalogram of a uh, Chris's consciousness onto the planet. Um, and I believe that in the book, they Gabarian and Sartorius started the radiation long before the government even knew about it because that's when the guests started appearing mm -hmm. um, because in the movie it's kind of like is contradictory in that aspect and I think that the narrative itself wasn't or the the main uh, technical features of the of the scientific aspect of it were second you know they were just in the passenger seat to everything else and I think that that's why Lem hated this movie because he was all about the scientific aspect of it of the moral question of um do we have a moral obligation to um, to seeking out truth and also um, even preserving uh, you know our what it means to be human in terms of uh, engaging with other species and uh, inter intergalactic beings and who knows what else is out there um, and um, also like what role does knowledge have? in our existence you know what is knowledge if we aren't able to attribute moral uh importance and, or relevance to it all because it's like you can be aware of every single truth in the world but if you in if you interact with a person and you aren't aware of like their experience and you're you're just completely morally ignorant of everything you're bound to not be able to communicate with them in the way that matters most to them and I don't know what what's your guys' opinion on like uh, morality in terms of uh, scientific uh, research. I like Burton; he's my favorite. <laughs> I think he he epitomizes that concept of like you can't do it without morality. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, he even references Hiroshima directly. Like, oh, you know about think about that when you think about the need for advancement or something like that, like nuclear development and all that. Mm -hmm. I think it needs, yeah, especially now, we need it bad. Yeah, I agree. But I think, I think, uh, like, that community, or, I don't know, I could totally be wrong, too, but I think a lot of times it, there is no morality. Mm. It's, I don't want to go conspiracy theorist, but... I see it as amoral when it comes to science i think if you want to like push the boundaries you have to have no morality almost so i think i, I think with richie it may be like a existence of modern science mm -hmm. where it's becoming like a pseudo religious thing to fill the void it feels like like a lot of for a lot of people like science is just the answer like uh for like the uncertain questions of space or longevity of life or what happens when where why instead of like a being higher above it's science now and i feel like right. we're starting to be disassociated from that even on mass especially with the recent like we just uh yeah we we heard about pandemics happening and like we're, we're assured stuff won't be the way it is right but then it still is and now like the fundamentals of those our modern science basis are kind of undermined like okay well the environment's the next thing we're told to work watch out for and we feel like we're not getting that resolved like our yeah, I think the institutions that research science and grow science are also warn us of these things, but they're still propagating them in a way. I think there's like a big disillusionment coming because of its amorality. It feels yeah. It it reminds me of a like the death of God in a way. It's like God is dead and we killed him. Um, I think that 
don't know. Like it, it, I'm for some reason I'm thinking of um, of like religion's role in this whole pursuit of knowledge and yeah, because like the experience. Religion has been around for a long time, way longer than science has, and then even before religion, we had mythology, which has been around way longer, right? So we had all these like systems that we attached to to go to for like our own morality and how to like how to live and um yeah and it's all like storytelling based you know yeah i think that you bring up a really good point with that too because it's like even in our most like uh, early beginnings of like mythology and like oral storytelling their morality is ingrained in it mm-hmm. and it's like is that humanity's saving grace is morality i don't know like, because it's like, imagine like 200 years in the future when, you know, technology could potentially be far more ingrained than it currently is, where, um, I don't know, it's like, will mor- will morality be deemed a, uh, a hindrance in the development of humankind, or will it uh, always be its saving grace? That's a great question. Because when you run into uh, battles of morality, that's when you have like wars started. You have, um, you know, religious persecution. You have all of uh, political divides. You have all of these different things that spawn division amongst humanity. And which leads me to my next question: um, Do you guys believe that morality is universal, or it's relative, or something entirely different, or a combination of it all? Hmm. I don't think it's relative. I don't. Fuck, I don't <laughs> For instance, is killing someone wrong? I know, yeah, like, no, shit, right? It's wrong, right? Like, I don't know. It's like, well, yeah, I think it's 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 like a construct, like everything else. Because mm-hmm. like killing's wrong, but killing in the name of your country. <laughs> that's actually yeah it's just like nice there's a lot of contradictions hell yeah you get a fucking medal boy <laughs> there's just a lot of contradictions in it on our level so I think it has to be a construct and it's flawed like we are like I think the film like Kevin brought up with the film's reflection of humanity yeah I don't have, I definitely don't think it's relative because there's so many like crazy wrong things going on in the world that like obviously our laws are different here and i mean even in other states right like laws are different like like weed is legal here but it's like crazy like you get in trouble for trying to like travel um outside of here to like you know another state and like you can get arrested and like it could be a bigger deal see but what's so sad about that is that that doesn't have anything i mean Mm -hmm. like morality isn't even a part of that equation it's more about like capitalization or uh capitalizing on you know oh well you aren't buying it in this place Mm -hmm. like and you're trying to bring it in here and i don't know and i think that um i don't know it's just so sad to me that that's even a thing because like you said richie there's so many awful things going on in the world where it's like it prompts the question oh well isn't that shouldn't we all be like looking into this more like why is it that it's uh being allowed to flourish in these certain areas i don't know i think it's because of they have so many belief systems nowadays we all have different understandings of morality based on like either our religion or if we like really believe in science yeah upbringing um your ethnic background cultural backgrounds like there's just too many um just too many influences 
you know, that affect like how you're supposed See, to read things. Now you're making me think morality is our biggest flaw. It could be. <laughs> Who knows? I I think it's it could be good. I think like with Kevin said, like we morality I feel is like lumped in. Like legality has nothing to do with morality in a sense of like someone's conviction. I think I always think of a uh, injustice for all with Pacino. Or like the the whole film feels like it's going like legality means nothing in the grand scheme. It's just like ways to oppress and benefit other people. And yeah, I just think there's yeah, there's just contradictions everywhere of what's morally right and what's legally allowed, and as well as like what we see in like uh, in the bigger cities, like the 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 gathering of wealth juxtaposed like the abject suffering of other people, and it's all help happening in a relative space. But like if we were more moral people maybe that wouldn't be happening and we would solve that but then we get bogged down with propagandized it feels meanings of legality deservedness winners losers all these other yeah i just feel like constructs are attributed to object and obscure that through line that i hope we have but i'm not sure yeah i i agree with that especially um in terms of like these narratives that are being pushed that have been pushed time and you know throughout history where it's just only meant to create further divide between people and in this age of like misinformation that we're living in right now where we have access to like probably the most powerful tool of our lifetime which is the internet of like being connected to so much information you know in the palm of our hands and we just see we just see all of these roadblocks and um hurdles that we have to you know jump over each moment that we hop online where it's like oh is this real information or is this false information is this the truth is this not the truth is this only a fraction of the truth who knows and you know depending on like one's own um uh moral compass it could be entirely wrong or it could be you know it could be like their most strongest conviction that they believe to be true and I don't know. I'm. I don't know if it is a hindrance or if it's uh, a benefactor of humankind. I. I'd like to believe that it is a benefactor, but then again, it, it's all dependent upon the person. And with humankind, it's a case by case nature. You know, we're all yeah, individuals, yet we make up the whole. Mm-hmm. That's what makes me think it, it's uh, like a, more of a flaw. But here's the thing. Um, if we're using a tool incorrectly, is the tool's fault or is it our own fault? You're right. But it's right. like, that's just another piece of the puzzle though, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what if the tool itself is broken? What if it was always meant to be broken? Yeah. I don't know. Or you just can't trust every user, every person to use that tool. But mm-hmm. when it comes to morality, that's impossible. That's so. why you got to take care of that tool. You got to reshape that tool. You got to like use it properly, you know, um, it's like when people say uh, a cab or something, or if you become a cop, you're automatically a corrupter of society. You uphold, um, you know, the system that only benefits uh, white supremacy or whatever. But then, okay, what if you grew up in a small town and you wanted to be a sheriff? Like that's that's totally different, right? You don't know, you don't understand like the geological or the diverse um, or the demographics of that population. It could be different, right? So you can't lump that into everything and say oh well if you're a cop you're a bastard or something you know it's just an example but yeah Mm -hmm. i think that there's a a lot of danger in um laying blanket statements like that because (laughs) there you know existence is a case-by-case thing 
Um, each person is different, no matter how small the uh, the difference. And I'm not trying to um, exalt or um, you know um, uh, basically justify any actions that have been like committed throughout history or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. just that's how it always has been, and it's just. I feel like that's just the truth of it all. Yeah, and, and the quicker you accept that, I think the happier you'll be, right? Or at least, not happy, but like the more, uh, I guess, tolerance you'll have for all the bad shit that's going on in the it, world, you know? It reminds me of um, another one of my favorite movies, which is Conan the Barbarian, which is you cannot trust anyone but steal. And I, I my own personal meaning that I like to attribute that to is that the mind is like a blade, that you have to constantly be honing every single day that you go out and, you know, hack away the shrubbery to make your own, to forge your own path. And over time, it becomes dulled, it becomes rusted, it develops chips in it. And every single day, you have to be grinding it in order to refine it. Yeah, everyone, everyone sleeps on Conan the Barbarian. That's a really good movie. It's a really good movie. It has yeah. such a beautiful philosophy to it all. I haven't seen it yet, but I do love Arnold Schwarzenegger, so that's definitely a classic I need to watch eventually. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like um, when it comes to morality, you have to constantly be honing your blade, and you have to practice mindfulness. You have to practice um, compassion and empathy, which is why, like, you know, like the movie challenges that we, like, do from time to time, that's, like, one thing that I'm always reminded of, you know, after, like, the first or after, like, the second or third day. It's like, wow, each day it's like a refresher on compassion and, you know, learning how to act out um, in order to um, promote benevolence amongst society and to connect with others. And it's also like a refresher in empathy because it's teaching you how to care about other people's predicaments, even though you might not experience them in the same way or ever experience them at all. And I, I think that um, that's why morality can't is tied to knowledge. It, it will always be tied to knowledge because no matter what new truth you learn, you have to constantly weigh your own morality against it and also determine if it fits within your own worldview versus if it doesn't. And if it doesn't, what do you do? Do you make it fit or do you deconstruct it all and form a new worldview in order to better suit it if you are either A, wrong, or B, if um, you're willing to accept, um, or if you're right, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Wow, that was quite the discussion. <laughs> wow. <laughs> We should have smoked before this. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I forgot to bring some stuff. Tyler, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, wow, that's uh, interesting. That that reminds me of um, this discussion I saw somewhere on Instagram where um, people mentioned that, like, say, like, a mass shooting is happening and, and there's a civilian that happened to be armed nearby and you stop the shooter or whatever like you can depending on what state you're in you can still get pursued by the law just because you even though you stopped another person from um going on like this violent spree you you can still go to prison for that or go to jail um because uh there are laws that are in place where like some people you know still are very much against like having that uh second amendment amendment you know to like right to bear arms and it's crazy right like I don't know, like, every state is, like, different. 
when it comes to those kind of laws and even though that person technically did the right thing just to a lot of people it's that's not the right thing it, it reminds me of um burton's trial and you know under the regime of whatever society he was a part of here they were creating like a bureaucratic um stronghold against what he was trying to do and like his his um his own moral obligation that he felt to um pri- or to preach um careful or uh, caution in terms of like relating back to Solar- to Solaris mm-hmm. and um because of like this one regime it just completely undermined every single effort that he had whereas like what if he was in a more sub- uh, supportive or um a more mindful uh regime or mm-hmm. a society uh, where they did take what he had into deep consideration, reflected on it for quite some time, and also, um, I don't know, like they just practice more caution with it. I don't sometimes know. it's not about that. Sometimes it's about the political agendas, and it's about the money, and you know, not not pissing certain people off. You know, mm-hmm. that's crazy, right? Like that I, supersedes doing the right thing. It's kind of like removing the morality factor out of it, mm-hmm. which dehumanizes us in a way, I feel. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, oh, well, you're choosing to protect this one party out of like self-interest rather than uh, for the other. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> then <laughs> Where's the morality in that? I don't know. It's very strange. But I mean, like, of course, like this is like, uh, this is all just armchair discussions where like, it's like, there's probably so many other factors that can be brought into this to this discussion but i don't know i feel like it's important to have perspective and it's important to not uh marginalize people and and it's important to not exploit others for your own gain or for any other purpose of exploitation um i don't know it's like that cliche thing of do unto others what you would want done to yourself Mm-hmm. But even then, I feel like that's such an egotistical thing to think about because it's like, oh, well, I wouldn't want somebody to punch me in the face. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, why are you not choosing to punch somebody in the face because you don't want to get punched in the face? It's like, yeah. wait a minute. But that seems like it's coming from like the wrong, um, I don't know, like the, uh, I don't know. I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> it made me uh, think of Full Metal Jacket. uh very very mild spoilers but like you know uh, you know how there was a towards the climax where uh, the soldiers were being hunted by a sniper and then when you find out what the sniper was you know they thought it was like a soldier but it was really a, a young child a young girl who was doing all this so like suddenly morality is different now right like you're not looking at that soldier as an adult you're looking at it as like oh my god like this barely teenage girl is like murdering people See, but like See, but you bring up a really good point with that too, though, because like if somebody who, I don't know, it, I would imagine it would take a lot of willpower and a lot of, um, uh, work, inner work to be done beforehand to take a moment to, you know, when confronted with that reality of, oh, I'm being hunted by a child whose family was probably murdered in cold blood by my colleagues, um, it would take a lot to get you to not retaliate in uh, anger or in uh, resentment towards that individual because you would have to come from a place of empathy and understanding. Mm-hmm. Like you would have to find that within yourself 
or if you're just a naturally sympathetic person or you don't need to do that, um, I don't know. It would just take a lot to uh, create just more space between the two Mm -hmm. in order uh, to negate the chance of uh, retaliation. Yeah. Because it's like, um, it reminds me of... um, uh, like just stories that I hear about, you know, uh, people's loved ones being murdered and then at the trial, like, or, you know, like there are stories of forgiveness and like, you hear like people like, Oh, like, why are you forgiving this person? Like they did this atrocity, they committed this atrocity to you. And I don't know. It, it reminds me of a come and see, mm. um, spoilers, um, the ending yeah, where, you know, you see the main character looking at, uh, the portrait of Hitler and then he just for every single shot he regresses further and further back into his life up until he's an infant and it's like oh oh yeah it's, <laughs> it's much more stops on like the mother and infant and then he like hesitates and that's where he has the realization such a good movie yeah and it's like all it takes is for that moment to be constellated for people to rethink their actions before they actually do something and i think that that's what um Burton and ultimately what um, Kelvin or Chris Kelvin are getting at in this story is that morality is tied to knowledge. There is no separation between the two. When you, when you even think to separate those two, that's when we start to derail ourselves in terms of uh, scientific progress and um, also just growth as like human beings. And I don't know. Yeah, they're the two best characters. Like, yeah, I, I like Burton a lot still. The orphan kid in the blue, black and black and blue city of oppression, just fighting the good fight. That's what I got the reading of. <laughs> what was the, uh, did, did anything ever come about, like, remember Burton, didn't he mention how he saw, like, like a, like a Titan-sized baby? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, 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 like a real-life Titan. Like a dark hair blue-eyed. I know, like, like Attack on Titan. Like, yeah, yeah, I was thinking exactly. that. I was like, so it's like a. Does, did anything come about that later in the film that I just missed? Or I wonder if because I remember he said Burton said something like that's the that's the son that's the kid he has with him. Okay, that is the kid. That's I believe I it is because that's what I the pilot who crashed had orphaned a son, and he said him Burton and someone else went to see the son orphaned. And then uh, it's uh, he said that it's the same. It was the same black-haired baby looking up at me. It was like the same thing as the vision on Solaris. So that's why he has like a bond to the. Uh, that's why he adopted iteration. Him. Yeah, or like this is yeah. That's why I think he also looks so like aged and like oppressed, like mentally, because like Solaris drains something from him. Was the kid also draining something from? Him? Is that why he tried to leave the kid there too? <laughs> I think I think he's he's there to support the kid and loves the kid, but it's just a thing of like the trauma because we're only humans compared to the planet Mm. is so grave but the fact i think in burton's last scene he like in the part of the car he leans forward on his cane he's very contemplative and then like two or more shots of those happen and then the kid gets more into the frame and at the end he like smiles and looks back at the kid burton's the best character i think burton has probably the best well aside from chris like has like one of the best like outcomes in that he was able to experience um a guest and also experience it on earth 
because the whole the whole um premise of like the station you know being especially with the library being filled with like all of these busts and like books and paintings um is that it's very nostalgic for earth like it, there's a deep deep and profound longing for earth throughout the entire uh, movie like even when Chris like first gets there and he falls asleep snout comes in and he's like hey you should do this thing that Gabarian taught me where you attach like paper lead or paper to the ventilation system it reminds me of leaves at night and even Chris is like oh well I like nights the most here they remind me the most of earth and I don't know it, it like it just makes me think about like the um the prologue where Chris is just standing out in you know amongst like nature and like with like the reeds with like the cattails and like all these different things just living and being a part of the, of the flow and when he's on the station the flow is disconnected and through this disconnect he's forced to stare into the mirror as as a living being uh who is self-aware of their own mortality and um I believe the uh, the moment where Chris is able to finally reconcile with like the grief and like the loss, or at least start the process, is when um, he he goes back and you know he thinks that Hardy is uh, gonna probably like commit suicide again inside of the library, but here she is looking at Peter Bruegel's um, Hunters in the Snow, just smoking a cigarette, just in deep lost deep in thought, and then um, there's that brilliant moment where. Um, they lose uh, gravity for about 30 to 50 seconds. And then you just see them floating in each other's embrace. And it's like, that's the moment of pure unadulterated affection and love that Chris finally got to experience with Hottie that he didn't get to on earth, whether it was due to his own shortcomings, the intervention of his mother or um, Hottie's own unresolved feelings, which we don't ever get to experience her in her pure form but we do with this idealized version of her that chris has or i wouldn't even say it's idealized because it's flawed um but i think that that moment was so profound in like the growth that it spawned within chris's character that he was willing to abandon his mission and deemed everything else um inconsequential in terms of, you know, being able to have this ultimate truth, which is love, um, you know, arise from, like, everything. And I think that that's just so brilliant. Okay, well, um, let's uh, have our closing thoughts. Maybe if uh, anyone else has anything to say before we end our review. Um I'm still puzzled by that shot of that girl saying hi to um, the orphan boy. I'm just, you just know the way he like, filmed it, that. I watched it again, I was like, this could be a meme right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It's like the like, slow zoom in. Uh-huh. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it was so emphasized for some reason. I'm not sure. I why. liked it, though. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was like a little bit of real life. Like when you're a kid and you go over to like a friend's and they have a daughter your age. Yeah. And there's like the early signs of like a crush or young love mm-hmm. between the two kids, which are completely innocent. That's the vibe I got. Yeah. I think, sure. I think you're right in that. Yeah. It just like, it just came and went. It's just like, that's, that's, that, that's it. That's the payoff. And then we never go back to that again. I think though, uh, what I was thinking earlier too, is like 
There's no other sci-fi movie like this, or I can't think of anything like it, really. I mean, there's a, can you guys? There's Solaris with Clooney. Oh, yeah, the, the remake. <laughs> Solaris with Clooney. Didn't Steven Soderbergh direct that one? Okay. Mm-hmm. But I, I think uh, the sci-fi genre needs like more films like this, mm-hmm. where it's more like spiritual and... Like what? What are some of the trends that you see in um, a lot of? I sci-fi think obviously movies like, star, like Star Wars. You know, just like <laughs> anything. Like you know, it's just got to be super grand. And Ghost in the Shell, I would argue. Ghost, Ghost in the Shell, Shell yeah, is very similar humane. to this. Mm-hmm. What's but, humanity? But which kind of those movies actually make a lot of money, though? I think the only reason why there aren't as many of these types. Oh is yeah, because that's, of, that's the sole reason why. Right, money. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like if people want to watch, like I, don't, I think the last one, I think it's sci-fi. It's more like fantasy, I guess. Is uh, Arrival? Oh yeah, and I didn't that watch one. That. I I like that one. It was mm-hmm. very interesting, thought provoking, but um, but yeah, it's yeah, always like yeah. super. Like you gotta have the coolest ship. You gotta have all these cool uniforms. An uh, explosion. Explosions. Time. There's <laughs> always got to be something going wrong in space, like an asteroid field or something. Mm-hmm. It's just like cheap shit. Whereas like Space Cowboys. When you're going to a new planet and it's like taking over your consciousness or transmitting real life people from your consciousness, that's just on a whole nother level. That's, that's why I love the next generation so much. <laughs> like it every single episode is like this. It's really? crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's amazing. Only have to pee. And weird. like so there are like okay just side note there are so there are, i'm just going to list off a few shows that i hold as like inner totems of like self-actualization um first and foremost berserk which pat introduced me to another one he introduced me to is neon genesis evangelion um solaris is one of them um yeah uh oh gosh where was i going i don't know <laughs> so, but yeah like i think that um uh, in terms, oh, and Star Trek: The Next Generation is one of them too. Also, another thing Pat introduced me to is Monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, also Eternal Sunshine and the Before Trilogy. A few other things. Anyways, um, the reason why um, I why I enjoy like the sci-fi genre as a whole is because you're given like this free reign where you don't have to. You know, like why it excelled in Soviet Union for, you know, their reasons. It's because it didn't like it didn't create any sort of like um, uh, division division against like the government. Whereas like in sci-fi, you don't have to have divisions at all. Um, Like in the next generation, there's like no money. There's like no um, (laughs) there's no racism, although it exists from like depending on like species and stuff. uh, Appearances don't matter. Like, it's just, like, simple things that you can explore and be like, oh, well, what would our society look like um, if we tried doing this? If we, or if we tried doing that or, you know, abstain from this? I think that it's such a powerful tool that um, is still in its infancy. And I think that it can possibly help reshape humanity's course in terms of uh, introspection and learning in the future by not focusing so much on the materialistic side of it all um, and the dystopic side of science fiction, because sure, it's great to have a lot of cautionary tales, but you know, if you're just holding up a mirror and being like, Hey, look at this problem. And you're like, Hey, it's a problem. 
there's no answers to it. What are we going to do? Yeah, if it's just Black Mirror over and over. Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, this is going to be a part of the future. Get used to it now. It's okay. Thank you, Amazon. I will. I'll start (laughs) accepting it now. Thank you for priming me. Yeah, and it's like, no, actually explore that. Explore the repercussions of it. See how it weighs on on the soul. And... I don't know. And it doesn't even have to be in such a heavy handed way. It could just be in a way that it's just purely adventurous. And, it, and I don't know if, if there's actually like some sort of weight and substance to it all, like yeah. don't dilute it. TNG. It's like a childhood dream. Just travel in space, misadventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't have to, mm-hmm. damn, I need to watch that. Again. I know. I want to rewatch <laughs> it again too. Oh, it's such an amazing show. Like when I stopped watching it, I felt like a genuine, pit of dis- like i fell into a pit of despair because like i don't know it would get me to believe in humanity again like it would get me to stop feeling misanthropic you know like it would make me believe that humanity does have a chance in succeeding and you know being a benevolent force in the cosmos and exploring it not just for its own personal desire but for i don't know the pursuit of it all <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so that about wraps up our 31st episode of our Lay Film podcast. Um, thank you again for tuning in and uh, definitely follow us on Instagram at Lay Film Podcast. Is that what it is? I forgot yeah, already. Yeah, Lay Film Podcast. <laughs> yeah, Lay Film Podcast. Uh, definitely send us an email, layfilmpodcast at gmail.com, and give us some feedback. Follow us on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes. Um, keep the downloads uh, going. We reached 2,000 not that long ago. Woo! Big milestone for us. So, um, yeah, uh, wow, this has been a great episode. Uh, thank you again, Kevin, for uh, picking this film. It really brought uh, attention to a lot of, like, great like discussions of morality and the philosophy of like knowledge and yeah yeah thanks uh thanks everyone for listening and uh catch us in the next one